What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Robert Habermeyer is the co-founder of Polkadot and a former core developer for Parity. In this conversation, we discuss Ethereum, the scalability issues, oracles, layer two scaling solutions, and why the best people in early crypto didn't care about the money. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Before we get started, I want to talk about one of our sponsors, The Grove. As many of you know, branding and online presence is crucial to the crypto space. With so many damn scams out there, it's tough to tell who's legit. The Grove, however, is a full-service creative and design agency that will help you amplify your brand with the perfect website, logo, collateral, or custom design project. Branding isn't just about looking pretty though, dot, 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 like me. The Grove understands it's about driving revenue. If you want to check out what they're doing, you can go to thegrove.co backslash pomp. Again, that's thegrove.co, not .com, co, new age stuff, thegrove.co backslash pomp. Let's crash their servers and light up the webpage. Let me know when you do it and I'll shoot you some fire emojis on Twitter. Thegrove.co slash pomp. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. I'm here with uh, with Robert. I'm uh, I'm super excited to uh, to do this. You're way smarter than me, so I'm hoping I can learn a little bit while we uh, we chat here. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me on the show, Anthony. Absolutely. Um, all right. Why don't you just give us a little bit of your background, and then we can talk about how you got a uh, got into crypto and go from there. Sure. Uh, so my background is well. I guess my background is not really that long. Uh, I guess I'm pretty young. I haven't been working professionally for a long time. How old are you? I'm 21. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I I basically started in in crypto, uh, uh, mostly in the Ethereum space. So uh, what I first started to work on was uh, the Parity Ethereum client. This is how I got to know uh, Gavin and the other folks from Parity. I started there uh, when it was still called Fcore. It was just six guys sitting around a table, basically in Berlin. Uh, now, of course, it's it's a much much bigger company. Yeah. Uh, the kind of stuff I did there was working on scalability solutions like Warp Sync, uh, working on a light client, which I think are super important. Maybe we'll dive into those a bit later. Uh, and for the past two years, basically, I've been focusing on on Polkadot stuff, which is the uh, project I'm working on now. Cool. What what was it like early, um, kind of in early days of Ethereum and Parity? Like, what what are some of the takeaways you had um, while working on that stuff? With now, what you know, many people would uh, would think of as kind of these legends in uh, in crypto already. I guess because it was so early, it definitely humanized a lot of the people. Like, you can if you look at the the social media presence that some of these people in the early days of Ethereum or of Bitcoin have now. It's crazy, right? They have huge followers. If they go over to conferences, they get swarmed by people. But really, in the end, they're just you know people building things. Uh, the early days were a lot different. I would say the 
you know, the atmosphere was much different. Uh, people were mostly just interested in building something very new that was very technical, that was very exciting to them to work on. I mean, it's a definitely an interesting problem space. You have all kinds of uh, cool problems to, to tackle. Uh, if you like to write code, it's definitely a good space to be in. Um, in 2017, things really changed. I'm sure that's been talked about ad infinitum, but it's, you know, the, the huge influx of money into the space changed. Even how the developers were operating all of a sudden, uh, I think the jokes got a lot more cynical sometimes like, oh yeah, this is a scam. This is, uh, you know, that's all bullshit, whatever. Um, but it, it seems to have mellowed out recently as well. Yeah. Well, when you guys were originally working on that, there was kind of five or six of you, you know, sitting around a table, basically was the idea to build, you know, cool technology to build something that would make money kind of what were, what do you think the motivations of the people at the table, you know, at, at that time were, because it fascinates me, you know, look at, at that point, there was people who were paying attention, but there's way more people paying attention today than there were, you know, when you guys first kind of got started. And so the motivations were probably a little bit different then than they are today for, for many people. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't a space that people would get into because they thought that they could get rich doing that. Like there was not really a precedent of that. That didn't exist in 2015, 2014, even up to uh, 2016. So I would say everybody there in that room and all the people I met at the Ethereum Foundation at that time and at Bitcoin meetups at that time uh, were really just in it because uh, either because they were interested in working on cool problems, and there's a lot of people who just like to do that, it doesn't really matter what else, uh, or because they could see the impact or some potential impact. Because we haven't, obviously, we haven't fully realized the extent to which blockchain is going to alter things, if at all. If you're a skeptic, there are many skeptics, uh, they would say, well, let's, let's wait and see. Uh, but I would say everybody in that room was interested in exploring to see how far that avenue would go to see, well, we hope it'll change the world. We hope it'll do so for the better. Uh, maybe, maybe it won't, but we're going to actually go and see, right? We're just going to go build it and see how far we can take it. That's awesome. And, and let's maybe talk through Ethereum today, right? Kind of how you see um, from the beginning of the project to where it is now. Do you think that it has uh, been able to achieve what many people originally thought it was possible of? Do you think we're kind of halfway through that journey? Maybe it's actually disappointed some of the early people working on it. Like, where do you think we are today compared to what some of the, uh, the early conversations were like? Yeah, the, the early conversations were more in the frame of move fast, break things, like very quick iteration, changing things very often. Of course, as soon as you acquired press and lots of users, uh, the governance process becomes much uh, more set in stone. And all of a sudden, little things that you thought you'd be able to change are a huge burden to go and change in the future. Yep. A lot of it was also uh, you know, scalability problems, how many transactions per second you can actually achieve on something like the EVM, on that frame of technology. Um, we weren't sure exactly how far we'd be able to push that to what degree of optimization we could actually take the nodes. Now we know it's around uh, seven to 10 transactions per second on, on proof of work uh, with the EVM. 
this is probably the biggest limiting factor in terms of preventing Ethereum from achieving what it's meant to achieve. Well, one of two, I would say. So the the first one is, of course, scalability. That you know we actually have to build all these things and do all this computation. Uh, and if there's no space in blocks for that to be done, then it's just not going to happen. Uh, the second is just there have not been that many material improvements in the abstracts on the research level, on the academic level of problems like decentralized oracles, geolocation, those sorts of things. And that was a lot of the narrative around Ethereum in the early days was really around those technologies, right? Can I order an Uber that's controlled completely by the blockchain. For that, you need something like geolocation. You need to prove the location of the car and of you to the blockchain at different points in time to show that you really were picked up and they really were taken to this place. And there have been attempts to do so, but uh, they, haven't, they haven't been as fruitful as people might have imagined three, four years ago. Got it. And... How do you think Ethereum can overcome some of these hurdles, right? So like, let's talk about scalability to, to get started with, right? In, in your opinion, what's the right path forward um, to, to solve some of these problems and, and help it achieve what you know, many hope is, uh, is kind of world-changing potential? Yeah, well, when it comes to, to scalability, there's, I see three major avenues for uh, for Ethereum or for other blockchains to, to basically proceed and to, to surpass what's been done so far. Uh, so the first would be something like Layer 2. Like this is the classic example with the Lightning Network or with Raiden on Ethereum state channels. And the idea is that you can open a channel on the blockchain, close it later. So it takes two transactions, but in the meantime, you can pass as many messages back and forth as you want. Uh, this can apply to money. It can also apply to something like games for gambling. It's been used very effectively there. Uh, and this can increase the amount of throughput that you have quite a lot. But still, the bottleneck is how many channels can you open? How many channels can you close? So there's still this limitation. Uh, the second avenue would be sharding, essentially, which is to split the responsibilities of transaction execution across many different sort of sub-blockchains. And each of those will proceed uh, within its own little sandboxed environment, essentially, but with the ability to communicate and send cross-shard transactions. And the third one would be something like zero-knowledge proofs. Uh, if you can, because the crazy thing about zero-knowledge proofs that not a lot of people realize, uh, so zero-knowledge proof is where I can prove that I know the answer to some problem without revealing to you what that answer is. And this is in like a very strong mathematical security model. Uh, so that's a very powerful tool. But the cool thing is that the problem can actually be very hard to compute. And the answer, when I prove that I know this answer to you, can actually be very, very fast to check this proof. So I can do a lot of computation and then send you a proof that takes a very small amount of time to check. So zero-knowledge proofs in that sense can almost be a, a tool for scalability. So let's spend a little bit more time on sharding and the zero-knowledge proof. So let's start with sharding. Maybe explain a little bit more about what exactly sharding is, and then how has this previously been implemented uh, across computer science to uh, be effective? Right? Like, wh why do you think that it can actually solve this problem? Yeah. So, sharding. I mean, if you take a, a regular blockchain, what you've got is sort of the set of, in the case of Ethereum or a blockchain like Ethereum, you've got a set of all 
accounts and uh, you have transactions that are included in the blockchain which manipulate this set of all accounts so send from account a to account b perform a smart contract call from account d to contract c yep in the case of bitcoin you have a set of all unspent transaction outputs and you have transactions that can manipulate any utxo in that set uh, so what you do with sharding is essentially you're just splitting all of that up uh, essentially the idea is that instead of having one set of all accounts you have many sets of accounts like let's say uh, numbered one through ten and within those sets it's very fast to transact that's one shard like in shard one you have this first set of accounts and you can easily transact among all of those and in starts what two through ten you also have their own sets and they're all sort of their own blockchains and then you have uh, validators who come to consensus over all of these blockchains uh, at once. Got it. And, and, and so what's interesting about this is uh, that there's a whole bunch of possible avenues, right? But like take the zero knowledge proofs, for example, what is a real world application where that would be important, right? So this idea that you know an answer, you don't wanna tell me the answer, but you wanna prove to me that you do know the answer. What, like what's a directly applicable way where that becomes important? Well, uh, for example, one one really good application is in digital identity. Okay. So let's say uh, you have some kind of digital identity and you have to prove to uh, a bar that you're over 21. So one thing that you can do with zero-knowledge proofs is something called a range proof. So with a range proof, you're proving that a number falls between two other numbers. So you could say, my age is somewhere between 21 and 100, and this has been attested to in some decentralized identity system by the United States government, by this hospital where I was born, something like that. Um, that it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a document that has some kind of reputation assigned to it, uh, and you can prove things about this document to others without having to actually reveal the whole information about what's your name, what was your place of birth, uh, who your so parents Because you what you're really doing there is you're proving that you are 21 or older, but you're not revealing your identity or all the sensitive information that is associated with maybe your driver's license, your birth certificate, your passport, etc. Yeah, for example, your address. You don't always want to give that out. Yep. Because what you're really doing is you're identifying or, or you, you've predetermined the reason why your ID is checked, let's say before you walk in a bar, is for no other reason than age. Everything else yeah. doesn't matter. And so you can actually pinpoint, here's what somebody wants to know, and then use a zero knowledge proof to um, reveal almost a true false statement, right, for age, and then you completely shield any other information from having to be exposed or, or shared. Yeah, exactly. That's that's basically it. Use a similar technique when you do zero knowledge payments, right? Like I can prove I have an account with this much money, or you could do it with an apartment, right? Like I can prove I have enough to pay rent, yeah, uh, without having to give out all your account details out. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, okay, and then uh, so, so that's kind of Ethereum parity, right? Some of the the uh, issues there. Uh, what are you working on now? Uh, well, what I'm working on specifically today or the last week or Dude, last just month. In, in general, where, where, where are you kind of spending most of your time right now? Yeah, I'm spending, I'm spending most of my time working on uh, polka dot stuff. So 
Uh, what Polkadot is, is basically a, it's a blockchain for interoperability. The idea is, and I guess we're going to get a lot into interoperability, uh, but the idea is that uh, we don't believe in this future where there's only one blockchain to rule them all, but that there are many blockchains, each for very specialized purposes. Okay. Uh, so with that, we're sort of creating this network for them to communicate. Uh, and it is it incorporates a degree of this sharded system that we talked about before. Uh, so what I've been working on lately for the past uh, uh, over a year now is to just code this up, essentially. We have a ton of code on, on GitHub. It's all open source. Um, if you think uh, you want to see what I'm actually working on, you can go see. It's all there. Um, been doing quite a lot in consensus algorithms. So we, we came up with some new uh, innovations in that field of research of consensus, so BFT consensus, uh, where some of the participants might be uh, malicious. They might be collaborating, forming a cartel, and you still want to reach consensus uh, despite that. That's sort of what makes Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other cryptocurrencies so resilient to, to many kinds of attacks. Um, Let, let's go a little bit deeper because I want to understand this idea of many blockchains surviving and thriving, but working together for what is called like the decentralized world, right? So you said something that was interesting around each blockchain has a very specific use case. And when they are brought together or connected in some way, that's what creates a really powerful product service, you know, infrastructure, et cetera. How specialized do you think blockchains end up being, right? Are we talking about there's one blockchain for payments or are we talking about there's one blockchain just for uh, international remittance payments? There's another for uh, consumer payments at like point of sale, right? Like, like how specialized or detailed do you think this gets if in fact we do yeah. have a bunch of different blockchains? Well, a lot of it has to do with the degree to which you can optimize from an engineering standpoint. Okay. The phrase that I often use is that specialization breeds optimization. If you take a very general solution, you can't often you can apply it theoretically to many kinds of problems, but in the end, it may end up being very inefficient. So, for example, with something like many smart contract languages right now, if you were to write a smart contract in Solidity, it ends up uh, compiling down to a list of instructions, and for each instruction, which is a tiny thing like add a number, multiply a number, you end up charging a fee in between. So it's like, okay, we're going to add two numbers together, then charge a fee. Multiply two numbers, charge a fee. Send a little bit of ether, charge a fee. So this is basically doubling the amount of work that you have to do to execute some kind of smart contract. If you can have coarser, more specialized op uh, op operations, something like upload a file to the Filecoin blockchain, uh, make this available, enter this specific kind of contract, uh, register my IoT device, you have to spend a lot less time during execution to charge fees. Uh, so I would say we'll end up having blockchains for uh, definitely for payments. One that's that comes to mind is the Blink network. Um, mm -hmm. They're doing something that's specifically designed for ver very, very fast payments. Uh, you'll have some for smart contracts still. Uh, the reason for that is that actually Smart contracts are specialized for generality, as funny as that sounds. So uh, most blockchains will have a specific purpose, whereas the smart contract blockchain's specific purpose is to be general. Um, and we might end up with many different kinds of blockchains for different kinds of payments, but it really all depends on whether people can 
uh, get engineering optimizations out of that. Got it. And then what would you say, or why do you not believe that we will end up in a world where let's say just Bitcoin wins or just Ethereum wins, right? Kind of this more maximalist views of the world. What do you think the holes in those arguments are or data or, or um, you know, points that you could point to that show those folks may not be, uh, be, be as right as they think they are? Well, I would say it still, it still boils down to this, this same degree of, uh, of specialization. If you can specialize, it's, it's a lot more, more powerful. If, if you're saying we're going to deploy something and as is, it's going to be the greatest that it ever is going to be, uh, so, uh, personally, I don't think that what we're building with, with Polkadot is not the end game, right? Like people aren't going to use that in a thousand years. That's ridiculous. Uh, but you need to understand that, that people will always invent something better. So, so the better idea is to come up with a system that can incorporate new ideas as well as old. So whatever has been built already, but what will be built as well can be incorporated into that same system. And that's sort of the ecosystem that's going to come around. This is really interesting to me because uh, I'm not an engineer, right? So, so you, you are a thousand times smarter than me when it comes to anything technical um, and, and probably a lot of other things as well. But one one aspect of this open source software that seems to be um, just moving forward at an incredible pace of innovation is that not only should we be focused on what is be, what is new or what's what's being created today, but we're also ripping out things that were innovative three, four, five years ago and replacing it with that new stuff, right? And so as you're building a lot of this technology, how much do you worry about building it in a way that uh, will allow someone to easily uh, replace old code or kind of you know, older innovations versus you just say, look, I'm going to push the pace of innovation today. I'm going to do whatever solves my problem right now. And then in the future, we'll figure out how to, you know, how to kind of replace this code um, if there's new innovations. Yeah. I mean, we generally, we tend to lean on the side within the code of generality. And this might sound like a bit of a contradiction to what I just said, uh, but actually with you know, the technologies that we're using, writing general code is not a de-optimization. Okay. Uh, it's simply, you know, when I when I say that specialization is good, I mean specifically from a standpoint of solutions in the abstract, not of actual implementation. Implementation generality is good. Uh, so we tend to write things where, you know, if I have a consensus algorithm, right, I don't really want to, in the logic of the consensus algorithm, care about where are the messages coming from. I mean, it might be coming over the internet through some kind of gossip network. It might be coming... Uh, through a USB drive that's been carried by a pigeon. I mean, it doesn't really matter at all where the messages are coming from. And likewise, on the, the other side of, of, of the field, uh, if you have the blockchain's logic about what transactions are supposed to be doing, you don't really care what is providing agreements on those transactions, right? You don't care if it's proof of work or if it's a proof of stake algorithm, uh, like Grandpa in Polkadot or like Tendermint in Cosmos or like Casper in Ethereum. It doesn't matter. Uh, so this means that if you write code in this way, if somebody invents a new consensus algorithm or if somebody invents a new, uh, what we call a state machine, so a state machine being that which defines the logic that transactions perform, uh, 
uh, if someone defines a new state machine or a new consensus algorithm, that it can sort of be plugged together. Uh, and this means that it's very resilient to new research being, uh, being created. Got it. Right now, and, and again, this is coming from a non-technical person's perspective, there's a lot of elements that go into what make up a blockchain. Everything from the technical code to the consensus algorithm to elements that I probably don't even understand. And when you are trying to allow for connectivity between these blockchains, how much of your time is spent focused on the actual technical code and, and making that those languages or the different code bases talk to each other or, or have some sort of um, interoperability versus spending time on, let's say, maybe consensus algorithms. If you have two separate consensus algorithms that work differently, um, just, just walk me through like where you really focus on and what are the important parts of making two separate blockchains interoperable? Yeah. So maybe to take a step back in the interoperability field. Okay. Uh, so. What we do, what we do in, in Polkadot is we sort of have two ways that blockchains can connect. So one is where we have sort of shards. Uh, they're, they're called parachains. They're parachains. They're parallelizable chains. And they're all agreed upon by one consensus process. So these are all sort of advanced in lockstep. Chain one advances at the same time as chains two, three, and four. And if any one of them is attacked, they all have to be attacked together. And that means you can pass messages really fast between them. Um, okay. However, you might also have a situation where the Polkadot parachains want to talk to a blockchain which is using an entirely different consensus algorithm, which is providing its own security through proof of work or some other proof of stake system. Uh, and what we have to do there, I think the bulk of the work is really not on the coding level, but it's really on the abstract level. Um, how do you figure out how to evaluate the consensus of one blockchain from the logic of another? Uh, and this is for every pairing of consensus algorithms is slightly different. But it is typically possible as long as that consensus algorithm provides what we call finality. And I guess, so go back to the parallel chains, right? How many chains can you actually uh, put in parallel? Is this like, up to four, up to 100? How, how many can you actually do there? Well, we haven't benchmarked yet, but our expectation is uh, that it'll be around the several dozens. So maybe wow. 64 to 144 to the low hundreds. Uh, and that's, that's at launch is about how many slots we're going to have. Uh, we expect that with further optimization post-launch in Q3 2019, we're going to have uh, the ability to deploy even more parachains than that. A lot of it is just a question of economic security, right? So you have all these chains, but you have to provide security for all of them. And that's a large amount of capital that has to be deployed specifically for the purpose of deploying, of securing blockchains. Uh, why, would one, I ever, why would I ever put so many, 64 or more chains in parallel? Like what, what is the application of, of the technology being able to do that? Or what benefit do I get out of that? I guess I wouldn't think of it from the, I mean, what would you get out of that, right? It's more of what does the world get out of that? Okay. So of course, not every person is going to use every chain. Of course. Um, 
And one thing that's that's quite interesting is we've we've heard a lot about the D app in the last couple of years, right? So what's going to be possible with this system is uh, with interoperability is that you have D apps which span across many chains, right? So one portion of this D app is living on file storage. One portion of it is using something like uh, Ocean Protocol for uh, machine learning and data. One portion of it is connected to the IoT chain, right? Uh, so you can have applications that utilize many different, you know, some some few blockchains that suit their needs. Everyday users probably won't use all of them. Uh, and if they do, my bet is that it's really generally going to be obscured through the user interface. The user experience is really important. I mean, if you would have a wallet where you had to say, okay, now I'm going to do this on chain A, this on chain C, this on chain D. And you had to explain that to your grandma. I mean, good luck. You need a, a PhD to do that, probably. Uh, so definitely the user experience is, uh, is really important. For sure. What, um, what other projects uh, are you really excited about and think uh, people are working on that, um, that, that have some really you know, high levels of technical innovation and, and if they come to fruition could be uh, fairly uh, impactful? So I've been very impressed by the uh, Zero X team. Mm -hmm. I think Zero X is doing really cool stuff with decentralized exchange. Uh, the fact that you can just trade tokens, swap them uh, without having to rely on some trusted third party, I think is amazing. And I, I know uh, a few members of their teams, their team pretty well, uh, and I can say that with with very good confidence that they're very very smart people. Um. I quite like what they're doing, and this is all like moon math. Uh, it's it's out of my out of my level, but uh, a lot of the teams that are working on things like uh, bulletproofs and and Starkware, uh, those guys are crazy, but they're uh, they're really doing something awesome. I've never heard the term moon math before. I'm gonna have to start using that because everything's moon math to me. <laughs> well, I heard it. I heard it first from uh, Eli uh, Ben Sasson from Starkware. Oh, uh, really? Starks in 2017, yeah. So that that comes from from the the mouths of uh, of these guys. What what uh j just because uh, I usually ask everyone about aliens at the end, but uh, what do you think the probability is that uh they fake the man the moon landing? Oh, I don't know, 110 <laughs> percent. I love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> all right, and then so one other thing for you because I'm really interested in uh, you're 21. Right. Yeah. And most people who listen to this are not 21. Right. So they're going to be a little bit older. What would you tell kind of an older audience, let's say, you know, 30s, you know, give or take a couple of years on either side about your friends, people your age that are excited about this cryptocurrency and blockchain space? that maybe they don't know? Like, is there one or two things that you're like, you know, I wish that these people realize, like, I don't know, how much people believe in it or two, like how much of their wealth they're actually storing in digital assets or, you know, what would you say to those people? Yeah. Um, well, generally the people that I meet who are into crypto are also a bit older, like tend to be in their mid to late twenties or, you know, thirties and beyond. Um, I think among the younger folks, it's actually much less common to have all your money in crypto. Something that usually, you know, you're just out of school, you've got a job, you're, uh, you know, you don't have that much money to throw into crypto. Uh, usually, it's it's those who are, uh, I don't know, more into to other kinds of subcultures and. Uh, uh, 
Yeah, or tend to tend to be rebellious. The, the people who are not as excited about crypto, right? That young twenties, uh, maybe not as excited as you are. What else are they working on? Are they working on other things in technology, or you know, some of your friends just go and get jobs at you know some consulting firm or become a lawyer? Or like, like how do you see yeah. uh, the the other bodies of work that they're excited about? Well, I mean, generally, it's just they're they're usually interested in crypto in passing like oh that's cool but it's less of a, a passion it's less of them that they're really just going to focus all their spare time onto because that's a, a huge commitment and of course you do meet people who do that and they they see what's going on in the crypto scene and they say wow that's that's something amazing i gotta put all my time into that uh yeah i would say most of my friends are, are fairly technical i mean i i guess i was like a video games computer guy in high school so i know a lot of people who are also in that sphere um, so they know how to use computers and a lot of them know how to program or use, do computer science. Um, but it's still the barrier to entry is, is quite high. Although to be frank, I would say that may be a blessing in disguise for now. Yep. Right. Because people say like, Oh, it should be easy enough that my grandma can use it. Well, not when there's network congestion. I think that might, might take a while before we get beyond that point. For sure. All right. So before I finish up, I usually, uh, you know, end with uh, some rapid fire questions. You ready? Sure. Let's go. What's your most controversial thought in crypto? Mm. Most controversial. This is not rapid fire at all, is it? <laughs> uh, uh, there's way too much money in crypto. Uh, developers don't know enough about math. Well, uh, that's because they can't do moon math. You and I can do moon math, so we're good to go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's right. why we push it to 110. <laughs> what is, uh, what's the most important company in crypto? Hmm. Most important company? Well, I haven't thought about that at all. I don't know. I think it's uh, less about companies, more about people. All right, who's the most important person? Happening. Sorry, what was that? Who's the most important person? No clue. I don't know. Uh, looking more at, at repos than people. I, I, I love the fact that you're willing to say, I don't know. You're the first person to ever say that. I love that answer. Well, thanks. Uh, I don't know. I think there's, there's a lot of people working on cool stuff. But if you ask me, like, who's the most important? I don't think that there's any that much degree on anyone. Uh, there's tons of people working on this stuff. Well, and, and part of the, uh, the value is that there isn't one person. Right, it's kind of the the beauty of this entire thing. Um, if you could wave a magic wand and change one regulation or improve it, what would you do? Which one? Ooh, yeah, I would. I would make it definitely. I would make it much more simple to use uh, credit cards to use uh, electronic payment. The barriers to that are actually really high. Uh, so getting rid of those regulations a bit would probably open the door to a lot. Love that. What's the most important book you've ever read? Uh, Siddhartha. Why? I, I didn't like the philosophy. All right. That's fair. Um, so we already talked about the moon and moon math. Uh, what about aliens? What's the uh, probability that aliens exist? Mm, 
They probably exist. I think it's very high chance, like 60, 70%, uh, but we're never going to see them. Why not? Oh, they probably exist in some kind of like different form, or even if we could see them, we wouldn't even recognize it. You know, like we don't know what life is going to look like in, in other planets and other parts of nature. I like that. I like that. Um, all right. I end each one with uh, letting you ask me one question. What, uh, what one question do you have for me? Hmm. What's the best pizza in New York? <laughs> the best pizza in New York. I'm Italian. You know that people get hurt for answering this wrong, right? All right. Just send it to me later. <laughs> no, I, 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 uh, this might not be a popular answer, but I really like the like 99 cent slices, you know, that are like on every corner in New York. They're just oh, yeah. super greasy. And uh, usually there's no place to even sit down. You just walk right up, you know, get a slice or two and then you got to go stand outside and eat it. But uh, oh, yeah. to me, that's like the ultimate uh, New York slice. Do you fold? Uh, I do. I, I fold, but not in the like aggressive fold way. You ever seen these people who like make it into like a sandwich and they basically like flatten it? That's yeah, that's that's me. That's you. Oh, you do the sandwich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we, we gotta come on. You when you come to New York, you let me know and we'll we'll go teach you how to do it. <laughs> yeah, I'll take you up on that. <laughs> All right, man. Listen, I'm uh, I'm super excited. We got to do this. I am. Uh, I, I I just really think that uh, what you guys are doing is pretty cool, and and you're having a hand in the building the future. So thank you from uh, from all of us over here, and uh, I hope we get to do this again in the future. Yeah, I hope so too. Thanks for having me, man. All right, guys. I appreciate listening to that episode. I enjoyed it, and I hope you did too. Before we go, I want to remind you that it was brought to us by The Grove, a full-service creative and design agency that has worked with companies like Block, Chamber of Digital Commerce, AAA, and the American Red Cross. You can check out more of their work at thegrove.co backslash pomp. Again, that's .co and not .com. Thegrove.co backslash pomp. Go check it out and let me know what you think. Hey everyone, Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.